and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with DJ Paulette. While studying in university and working as a TV presenter in Manchester, Paulette landed a residency at the legendary Hacienda Gay Party, Flesh, where she learned to DJ on the job, as she says. After regularly DJing around other northern cities like Leeds, Sheffield and Nottingham in the early 90s, she was eventually called down to heaven in London and ultimately ended up with a Ministry of Sound, working both in London, Ibiza and around the world as a resident in their international touring crew. In conversation with Martha Pazienti-Caden, we get a first-hand look at Paulette's time behind the decks at Flesh the story behind a nine-hour jet-lag DJ set in Montreal, and her advice for young women aspiring to build a career on radio and in the booth. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with DJ Paulette is up next. You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. My name is Martha. I host the Hour podcast, which is our other podcast. And for today's exchange, I'm spending some time with DJ Paulette, who's been an integral part of Manchester's dance music scene. Welcome to Resident Advisor Paulette. Thanks Hi, for joining Martha. us. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Happy that you're here and you're down from Manchester yep, today. Certainly. Yeah. Virgin Trains. Boop, boop. <laughs> they were late today. No. Ten minutes later, they sent that little note out saying, how did you judge on our performance? and I'm going to go in with the complaint. Yeah, you tell them how it is. Yeah. Um, let's begin in Manchester. So what's your earliest music memory connected to the city? It's quite funny, actually. Well, I've got two really big blazing memories. My mum used to own a nightclub, uh, co-own a nightclub in Manchester in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s called the Ebony Club. And I remember, I have a vague, well, vague recollection as a child of hiding underneath the tables and watching people's legs dancing. That's that's just the first sort of vague music, people dancing connection memory. And then I remember being maybe three can't know I must have been less than three because we left Manchester when we were three for, for a few years me and my twin did a starring role at the Jamaican West Indian Centre my mum had put together this massive concert thing at the community centre my mum was a singer my mum's a jazz cabaret singer and 
she was very involved in the community and so all our family were kind of roped in for this concert and we all had a song to sing and me and my twin um sang this song I've got a twin sister identical and we sang this song Daisy Daisy which everyone loved you know two little cute as a button little kids with afros and dressed identically singing a song with a dance routine I mean what's not to love so we got a massive round of applause singing this song so we went off and then my sister Elizabeth went on to sing her song, which was a penny kiss, a penny hug. But me and Paula just loved being on stage so much. We just blazed into her thing and started doing our song again, which was just like, no, it's not your turn anymore. And I think that is the moment when I learned to love being on stage and performing and also learned the very bad habit and I have a really bad habit of upstaging the bride. <laughs> Never upstage the bride. It's a bad idea. Fast forward to, and this is why I say this memory, my 40th birthday in Paris. And um, I had Steve Angelo and Sebastian Ingrosso played at my birthday party. Never upstage the bride. I got really drunk. And I used to dance in Paris when I was DJing. I'd, I'd kind of dance at the same time as I was putting records on. So the first part of the set, I was topping and tailing the party. So for the first part of the set, that was fine. It was perfectly accepted. Da -da -da, raised the atmosphere, got everybody going. But then I got really drunk. And when Steve and Seb were on, I was on the stage, wouldn't get off, up above the rafters, wouldn't get off. And they complained about it and I never worked with them again. That was just... Oh, that was that. <laughs> so yeah, there's a little memory. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. So after you were three years old on the stage, what were you listening to throughout growing up? I am the youngest of eight. I've got six sisters and um, yeah, I've got six sisters and one brother. And my mum's a jazz singer and she sings cabaret as well. And my dad always loved music. So there was always music, music, music in the house all the time. And I just picked up music from everybody else. So my mum would be playing everything from Ella Fitzgerald, Mahalia Jackson, Lena Horne, I'm, I'm thinking of the album covers, um, Lisa Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, George Benson, you know, everything from show tunes, Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, West Side Story, Funny Girl, Funny Lady, she loved Barbara Streisand, my dad loved Vic Damone. Um, and then my sister Rhonda was really into Northern Soul, so she had just this phenomenal Northern Soul record collection. My, I remember my brother had the original Sticky Fingers Rolling Stones album, and I used to love playing with the cover because it had the jeans. It had like a proper zip in the jeans. It's a black and white cover. And I used to play with that. I remember playing with it, and I cannot believe my brother sold that album it's worth a fortune now but and and that and he also had the original Andy Warhol Velvet Underground album with the banana on it which I just thought was a magnificent cover so I have this recollection of play, not just 
being aware of the music um, my sister Jenny loved the Beatles so she had all of the Beatles album and Genesis and Jethro Tull and Roxy Music and Sparks and so I'm, I'm getting it not just soul, disco, funk, jazz you know my mum was also into classical music but also you know lots of different types of music as well David Bowie, Roxy Music, Iggy Pop, T-Rex T I've still got my sister's Elysia's album T-Rex my people were fair they had stars in their hair it's a double gatefold sleeve and it's just got this mental psychedelic 70s cover on it with mark boland kind of um morphing into some kind of peacock or anyway crazy album cover i still have it so there was all sorts of music going through the house all of my sisters my brother they were all into different music some of the same, but, you know, some crossovers, but we all had our specialist subject, you know, our specialist field. And I, being the youngest of eight, got to hear it all because I was just one of these kids that pestered and pestered and pestered and said, can I come in the room while you're playing your music? And I was told if I sat on the heater and I was quiet and I was good, I could. So that's it. And do you think being around all your siblings and their music taste has impacted yourself as a selector and as a DJ? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it still does today because kind of one of the reasons why I came back from Ibiza was because and and changed what I was doing in 2013 when I left Paris was because I wasn't feeling the music that I was playing at the time and I wanted to play the kind of music that connected me back with my family which also I mean, and in a very selfish way I wanted my family to come to my parties I wanted them to I wanted to have that kind of house party vibe again where I felt like if I was doing something that they could come and I knew for as long as I was just going to play straight down the line like techno or house or you know there would be some that would come but they wouldn't you know the older we've got you know they're less into raving but if I play a set of disco funk and soul and uh, and that kind of music rare groove they'll come and, you know, they might not stay all night, but those parties tend to be earlier. So they'll come and they'll still get an early night. Mm. So in a very selfish way, yes, it did influence me and still does. I wanted to ask when you were growing up, alongside all the music and the albums, was radio a big part? Of oh, that? absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah, it really was. Because, you know, I, I don't make any secret about my age. I was born in 66. So... You know, when I was five, six, seven years old, the radio, in fact, younger than that, because my mum used to leave. <laughs> this sounds really bad. When my mum had to leave the house and and leave me and my twin with my sisters, she'd sit us either on a window ledge or on a, you know, where, wherever, on a chair or you know, tell us to be good on a sofa or whatever. And she'd sit me and my twin together and put the radio on. And and sometimes if we were crying, she'd put the radio on and say, you can cry to this, 
knowing that we'd start to listen to the music and we'd stop crying and it used to stop me crying the radio always used to stop me crying and I I have a recollection of us both going and crying and then this song would start and we go (laughs) and start listening to the music and then we'd just be really into the music and be really good kids till my mum came home because we were listening to the radio so the radio has always had a very special kind of place in my heart because it it's that thing that gave me a sense of security and a sense of everything's going to be all right and a sense of um you know a sense of the music that I liked because I was responding to things that I heard so all the way along well I, I think I started listening to Radio One I think that was the national station and then when we moved to Manchester a few years late into, we, we moved there probably mid-70s, mid to late 70s or early 80s, Piccadilly Radio was started in Manchester 261 and we switched to that, the local radio station. And um, on the local radio station were Greg Wilson and Mike Shaft. And Greg Wilson was like my family's absolute go-to for music soul disco funk you name it and they went to all of his parties whether it was at Berlin or Rafters or wherever else Greg Wilson Colin Curtis Mike Shaft and Hugh and Clark were the DJs that um, were playing on the radio and also in clubs so there was that link then straight away also from radio DJs being the ones that entertained us at night as well so that's how I kind of got interested in doing radio and then when I was 18 I wanted to become a broadcaster I don't know why I think probably because I was also listening to people like Annie Nightingale and John Peel and they'd impress me because they had just these weird out there random selections that were um, you know, they'd play David Bowie and they'd play Susie Sue, Susie and the Banshees and they'd play the Sex Pistols and then John Peel would have like really weird named bands, which I'd never bought a record by any of those people, but it, he just played it anyway. And it just g- gave me this idea of you can educate people with a radio show as well. And um, then... I wanted to become a broadcaster and I started working for Piccadilly Radio as a junior reporter on a show. I did interviews, gig reviews, live, um, vox pops, everything, you know, and I, in back in the day as well, we were recording it on like a, um, a Marantz and then going back into the studio and actually editing it with a scalp and, a, and chalk. So that's how I learned um, my radio skills. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I've got a history of radio. From then, I've always wanted to do radio shows. And how about learning to DJ how did this come about <laughs> I don't think I've even I still don't think I know what I'm doing <laughs> because you're always learning you always learn new tricks and the technology changes so and it's changing so fast now anyway that um I think it's actually stabilized a bit now but 
I've seen DJing change from, you know, we didn't even start with Technics. You know, they they weren't, the original decks that were in the clubs weren't necessarily belt driven. You were just putting records on, you know, one after the other and you, you had a mixer that enabled you to move, fade from one side to the other. And then I've watched it develop in the time that I've been DJing from 1991 to 2018 to techniques becoming the industry standard. You know, when I started DJing at Flesh at the Hacienda, we didn't have techniques downstairs. Are you kidding me? It was, I, I can't even remember the make that like, it looked like some kind of mixer that you would use for live performances or or even festivals in a field you know it, it was like sound engineering equipment not club mixing so I've seen it change from really like ghetto setups to you know top of the range now um you know my rider is pioneer nexus 2000 cdjs I won't use anything else I I'm a usb head um, although, you know, I have used and can use Tractor, Serato, you know, I use Tractor to do my mixes at home and I use Pioneer when I'm DJing out in clubs. So I've watched the whole thing change. So do you recall getting your hands on decks for the first time? Yeah. I'm really nervous. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, because I didn't have equipment at home. I didn't have the equipment at home. I didn't set out to be a DJ. I really did not set out to be a DJ. I was, uh, when I became a DJ, I was studying at Manchester Metropolitan University. I was doing a degree in English. But at the same time, I was dancing in clubs. I was modeling. I was a known sort of head in the you know you, people know you for your area and it's like oh there's Paulette whatever so in one way I was expected to become a teacher and in another way I was presenting a tv program so I was more a tv presenter and I was presenting a radio program so I was more on the pre presentation side than the actual DJ side and I fell into it just because I had a lot of records and a friend of mine who knew somebody else who was doing a party at the number one club and she'd run out of money and she didn't have any money to pay a proper DJ so he told her that I had a lot of records and which I did and she asked me if I would like to do it and I said, well, I haven't got lots of house music, but I've got some house and I've got like bits of everything. I've got disco, funk, soul, rare groove. And she said, yeah, 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 that's great. I think she was just absolutely desperate <laughs> to be honest because she she promoted the party and she didn't have a DJ, which is just absolutely bonkers. So she's like, yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. Just do it. And I said, I've never played in a club before. She went, oh, right, I'll take you round to this guy's house. You'll learn. It'll be fine. And we went round to this guy's house, a friend of hers who had decks, and he wouldn't let me touch them. And I was like, well, I need to learn how to play. And he's like, no, no don't, don't, touch, don't, don't touch my decks. And he was really possessive about his equipment, which 
now after years and years DJ and I'm like, okay, I kind of get that. Like these are my pressures. It's like Gollum with the ring, you know, it's like, don't touch it, my precious. Um, but I don't know whether it's a male, female thing or whatever it was. He did not want me to touch the decks. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to let me have a go because I need to learn how to play. And he went, OK, well, just press that button. So I pressed the button and I made it start and it was playing. And he said, right. So on the other deck, you've got to press that button and make that record play. And then you bring in the fader. He didn't tell me about beat matching. He didn't tell me about sequencing. He didn't tell me anything. So I, I set the second deck off, bought the mix across and he went, great. That's it. That's all you need to know. Right. Fine. Now go. <laughs> you're kidding me and that was my introduction to DJing so when I started DJing when I did the night of the number one I was I was almost hysterical I I knew because the system also was different it wasn't the decks it wasn't techniques so they weren't the decks that I'd practiced on and it it wasn't a mixer that I'd practiced on and I didn't recognize the buttons. I didn't know how to monitor it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the foggiest idea how to make it work, but I had the records. So all the way through the party, the guy that was doing the sound at the number one, he also went to do the sound at Paradise Factory later on was called Ian Bushel and he was at the side of me all the way through because he was working the lights and I was just all night was like Ian 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 what do I do what do I do and he'd go press that push that across and he just told me how to do it but I learned on the on the job and how we managed to then be offered the second room at the flesh party is just a complete stroke of luck like they liked I think people talked about the music at that party people really enjoyed it and it was something different I wasn't playing like mainstream the sort of music that you would hear at a mainstream gay party um, I was playing house disco funk soul you, it, you weren't really really hearing that on the gay scene in Manchester so they offered they said we could host the second room and that's how we got in and I went I think I, I played there two years before I'd even bought my own equipment so for two years even though I was DJing regularly monthly for flesh and then weekly for other people around Manchester because my booking started to pick up I still didn't have my own own equipment at home so <laughs> what I used to do was I had a record player um you know my mum had a record player and I just used to put them side by side and try and get the records to run at the right speed and then bring one in and bring one out and I think that's kind of how I got to know what to do which is probably why I'm so rubbish still <laughs> still roots <laughs> was there a moment um after that where you felt like you kind of looked around at a party that was going well and thought oh maybe I've got the hang of this I did when I was at Flesh because it that's when I kind of relaxed because 
it really in the end it comes down to what you play and you can be as technically gifted as you like but if the music's awful no one's going to stick around you know you can put put as many loops as you want in it and you can cut and scratch and you can do whatever you like with music but if your music isn't on point no one is going to stick around and the good thing for me is I'm a dancer I play music that makes me dance that makes me feel good that and I hope that makes everybody else feel good I am I like to party and I'm, and I do go in deep with music in a certain way but I'm vocally led and I'm lyrics led I like songs so for a long time I couldn't get arrested because a lot a lot of clubs aren't song related if you play a song in there it's like ooh words <laughs> but I am a, I am vo vocal and song driven and I think what happened was I was playing music that was making people feel good and the room was always packed. So from the beginning of starting to play in that second room at Flesh, I had a captive audience. People didn't leave. You know, people came to that party for my room. So that was, you know, that was a moment for me because no matter whether I had the equipment at home, I knew I was doing a good job because there was sweat dripping off the wall. People came back every month. I got to know faces and regulars and names. Some of them, some of the people I'm still friends with now, 20 odd years later. So yeah, Flesh was really a turning point for me in terms of um, musical choice and also my own DJ personality, how I wanted to present the music and tell me a bit more about Manchester around that time um well you know it's funny when I talk about flesh now and I talk about the gay scene and I talk about Manchester people kind of think about it with a 2019 head on them and I have to ask them to remember that in 1992 in Manchester we've just come off the back of Clause 28 being passed, it wasn't cool to be gay in Manchester. It You were under threat in many ways. If you were seen to be hanging around the gay quarter, you know, Canal Street and all of that wasn't like it is now. It wasn't accepted. You ran the risk of getting your head kicked in. You know, so what they did in creating the Flesh Party was make a safe space for people to go and enjoy the music and enjoy their culture and enjoy being who they are without fear of retribution or violence. So politically, it was a very powerful statement to make. It wasn't just a club night um, and it wasn't just a branding exercise to make money out of a rainbow flag. It was as political as it could be. You know, even the police force at that time in Manchester were anti-gay, anti-LGBT. That kind of sets the scene for 
the the clubbing that I came through. And what ways were the organisers of Flesh able to create this safe space? Like, how did they go about it? Well, they made it very clear in the advertising straight away that it was for, um, what was it? Lesbians, gays and their friends. And they would ask people on the door, are you gay? That's straight away. And if they said no, it's who are you with? And if they didn't know who they were with, you weren't getting in. They did not get in. And, and it was positive discrimination, but for a reason, because they had to make that space that safe. We couldn't run the risk of having people that were even remotely questionable in there because we wanted everyone to have a nice time and enjoy it as they wanted to enjoy it. If you want to run around with... Um, gaffer tape crosses on your boobs and wear nothing else you could it was very hedonistic and we were allowed to do that because the doors were closed to people who had closed minds um so after you'd been DJing around Manchester for a while you started to get opportunities to go and travel and play internationally how did how did that first experience of playing outside of the city go um outside of the city I think for the first, I think I played in Leeds first and it might have been, was it the Music Factory or or it could have been the Vague Party that I played in Leeds first. And that felt great, you know, I was just like, I actually couldn't understand what was happening, but, but people wanted me to go and play in another club and do the same thing that I was doing in Manchester. So it's like, oh, okay then. This is good. I hadn't considered it as a job and it didn't exist as a job really in those days either. You know, it's not like it is now where you're expected to have a certain progression and certainly, you know, not for women. Yeah, it was great. I started off in Leeds and then I did Venus in Nottingham and then I did Sheffield and then I started doing Leeds, Sheffield and Nottingham on a regular triangle. Then where did I go after Leeds, Sheffield and Nottingham? I think then I started to go further south. I started off in London with Heaven and um, wherever else they used to put me. And I uh, by 90, well, Heaven, this is up in Brighton. And then I started playing at the Ministry of Sound. And then from there, you started to go to Ibiza. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the ministry that took me out to Ibiza. And I played for the ministry for years. You know, I did both uh, London club nights and also the, um, I did Ibiza for them, um, playing at Space and Pasha and um, Café Del Mar and wherever else. And then I was one of their international tours residents for years. And I toured... Asia, Argentina, South America, um, all of Europe, all over the place, really. Mm. Let's talk more about residencies, because I feel like they're kind of coming back right now. It's interesting, you know, in, in one way, residencies are amazing because you get to know, you really get to know your crowd. But in a way, that can be a bit the undoing of you, because then and certainly I know this applies when you're a resident in Ibiza because 
you are overlooked as a DJ. You're just the resident and the guests come in and they're always, the guests always are bigger than the resident. The guests always. And you don't get to grow into, from being a resident, you don't get to grow into guest status. So you you have to be very careful about how long you are a resident for or how long you are a resident in one place for. So you have to kind of move around and change it or start your own party or do something because you can kind of box yourself off with being a resident for too long. Mm. How did you navigate that? You have to move. I moved um, and... Also, I play lots of different sets. So I I think I've never really got stuck in a resident rut until I got to Paris. And there I did nine years of playing at the absolute top of my game. But I was a resident at three different clubs. And then you're not allowed when you play for those clubs for a certain amount of time you're not allowed to play for any others in the city and then it started to work against me but everywhere else when I was in London I played for lots of different people so I'd play for Giles and I'd play for the Ministry of Sound so I was playing house and I was playing rare groove and little bits of tougher music so when I was sent out to play in Montreal I would play much harder and much darker so I was doing lots lots of different things in London so the residencies didn't block me off too much there and when you do have a residency and you're playing weekly or monthly what were your methods for growing your audience or growing your community around you well it's the music it's always the music and there there are certain records I know even now since I've been back in Manchester and I've only been back for three years and only really playing properly regularly for two of that, um, that people know who's playing by the music they hear. And I have a certain way of playing and I have a certain musical choice that people can recognise, even though they're probably records that other people will play as well. I'm not saying that I'm... You know, I'm not inventing the wheel. I'm playing records that exist. You know, I'm not a producer of music that is essentially mine. So I am playing other people's music, but I have a way of putting that set together and I have a way of arriving in a room and taking over a room that people know instinctively that it's me that's on the decks. And I've heard people say that really regularly. It's, oh, we knew it was you because... I have a way of flipping a room. I just know that's how I like to take over. Have you got any um, particular memories from any residencies across your career? Of um, I would like to hear about the kind of characters that you met during those residencies, like people that were ravers that became friends. Oh, loads, loads. I mean, Flesh is the the ultimate one because those people, all of those people that were in front of my deck so now you know a lot of them are really heavy hitters in their respective trades and things so um you know 
I had like a very young Stuart Holton who is dancing in front of my decks all the time. He's Vivian Westwood's second. You know, he, he is the director of Vivian Westwood International now and he's, you know, very serious player. You know, he brought the fashion edge to my room. Similarly, Paul Marasha, the guy that's the head of Nobu now, he, I, I remember him when he was sweating, <laughs> you know, sweating in his boxer shorts, dancing on the bar, you know, um, and various models. You know, I always had like Mick Hucknall down in my room and various pop stars and DJs down in my room. And I used to play with Luke Howard in that room and Princess Julia and Luke Howard is now, you know, one quarter of Horsemeat Disco. And that's, you know, we DJed together for years at Flesh. And Guy Williams, obviously, you know, he he is now in his second season with his Flash party at, at Pikes and... Um, you know, he used to come and dance in front of my decks and ask me for DSK, what would you do? I don't remember. <laughs> so funny. Was there anything that you observed or picked up in terms of skills um, for your sets from doing those residencies? Like, how would you say they shaped you as a DJ? Oh, fleshes just don't bore people. Rule <laughs> number one. Absolutely don't bore people. Because my... They, my friend Robert Shaw and Paul Marasha and the Sheffield lot, they used to have this thing where if they didn't like a record I'd played, they'd just give me the time out sign, you know, the American tea. Um, so if I ever saw that, it was like, well, oh, yeah, change the record fast. And, and I just learned to be in the vibe and keep the vibe like steady 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 all the time and it's a really <laughs> it's a very leveling thing if someone actually does that to you it's very rude actually <laughs> but I, you know I just had it was like a war zone it, it's like the front line like people were very they were very supportive, but also very unforgiving. So if I made a mistake, I knew about it. So it was a very hard, hard, harsh and good training ground. And nice to have people so engaged. Oh, totally, totally. And like I say, they're still friends. You know, you know, we still talk and everything. So, So what do you like about holding a residency? Oh, I love residencies because you do get to know, you get to know the people at the club, you get to know the people on both sides, so staff and punters, you get to know the way everything works you, and every building, every place, every club, every bar has its own feeling, has its own vibe. So you really get to understand what makes that space tick, you know certain times and the the waves of people and how the people move around the space and whether they want to dance or whether they want to listen or you know whether they want to dance on the bar or whether they're going to get really you know some places people go and just have a couple of drinks and they're fine other places people go and they get absolutely wasted and you have to know right okay so I'm in Joe wasted space so this is what they want in this space and it, it the, the music changes for every space. And I think the residencies give you that insider information that as a guest, when you go in, 
you have no clue what people want. You just have to go with your gut feeling. And if they like it, they like it. And if they don't, tough. Do you have stories to share with us from Hacienda times? <laughs> Which ones? <laughs> I think there was a lot going on at the Hacienda times. Like on a personal level, I was presenting a TV programme and studying for my degree at the same time as DJing once a month there. So and I was also very... I wasn't really party party girl because I just had so much going on. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a googly eyed salad spinning. How many whatever you've got on the carousel is mine there. No, I wasn't taking anything and I wasn't really, really drinking. So for me, it was watching other people go and thinking, wow, this is this is what I'm doing to people when they're in that space so I just re didn't really get get to have that experience of the high the assisted high I was always just high on the music so I suppose my stories for the Hacienda are more music related than that mm. and were you alone in not partaking in yeah certain totally everybody else was <laughs> three sheets to the wind and everybody thought that I was just assume assumed yeah my twin was my twin was absolutely bang on it but I wasn't and yeah. how come you and your twin never decided to be a musical duo because she cannot DJ to save her life have you tried to encourage absolutely. her absolutely no what happened now here's the thing yeah here's the thing this is what and this is why I don't take drugs anymore <laughs> don't take drugs it's bad I finished my degree and I'd taken three months off from DJing and I'd moved across to home. We had a party called The World at Home as well as Flesh at the Hacienda. And I was a resident of both of those parties. And it was my first night back after taking three months off. And I'd invited all my friends to come and party at my house before we went. And... We'd had vodka jellies, we'd smoked a bit, we'd had drunk so much alcohol. And somebody gave my twin a pill. <laughs> so she was high at nine o'clock. She's like, I want to go to the party. I'm like, it's not open yet. No, we need to go, we need to go. So we went to the party at nine o'clock and we were in the car park listening to Pete Tong before we got into the club. Like, it was just one of these nuts thing. We got into the party. Everything's fine. Everyone's kind of enjoying it. And I think it must have been about 10 o'clock or 10 o'clock, half 10-ish. Someone gave me a pill and said, here, everybody else has had theirs. You take it. Can I talk about this? <laughs> I was getting a bit worried. So everybody else has had theirs. You take it. So... I looked down and I didn't have any pockets and I looked to my right and there was a security guard to my right and I thought I can't just put it down on the decks because he'll see it. I can't put it inside my waistband because it's going to melt. So I just took it. Now I have got absolutely no resistance to drugs. So I took it and then I looked over to my friend's and they were all holding on to the pillar like this. And I thought, oh, no. 
Oh, no, because all of my friends, they have got like, you know, they can do whatever they want all night. I was always the one that was getting carried out for just being, you know, whatever, having, having a nibble and getting carried out. I was I am a really rubbish drug taker. I am just really awful at it. I can't do it. It just doesn't agree with me. And I'd taken a full one and I looked at them and I thought, oh, well, <laughs> this isn't going to go well, is it? <laughs> so um, it got to about midnight and I played the track Donna Giles and I'm telling you I'm not going. And it was my absolute favourite track of that time anyway. It's a Stonebridge mix. It's a brilliant remix. And, and it always, always lifted the room and always lifted me up. And it really did. <laughs> I went so high that I could not come down. Like, it was just like, oh, God. I'm like, not not even halfway through my set. My room was full from front to back. Because it always used to be. And, and plus, it was my first night back. So, the room was really full. And I had to go and dance to this record. I just... <laughs> I want to go and dance to this. this is my record. And I think this is also the start of me really going around the decks and dancing and then coming back and putting another record on and going around the decks and dancing and coming back. Anyway, I had a little dance and it wore off a bit and I thought, oh, that's all right. I feel so much better. And then I'm mixing, turned around to look at my record box and all the middles had gone black. So I couldn't. It was like there was something wrong with my vision. <laughs> and I was panicking and I thought, oh, no, what do I say? You know, what? How, how am I? How? How do I tell what record it is? And fortunately, I arranged my record box and I was playing vinyl at the time. So I arranged my record box in alphabetical order. That's how I that's how I find my stuff. So I'm kind of rifling it through, picking one up, putting it on and thinking, oh, yeah, right, that's it. So I'd put that record on. I wouldn't know where it had come from in the box because all the middles were black. And then I put it on the the turntable, went to monitor it in my headphones and I could hear it. But then when I was bringing the fader across, I went deaf. <laughs> And I was just like, no, 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 no. This could not be happening. This cannot be happening. So I kind of struggled with it for about 10 minutes. And I knew the mixing was kind of going out of the window and the selection was going out the window. But people were staying. So I was like, all right, OK, um, just keep it. And I had like three hours more to go. I was like, oh, God, this is an absolute disaster. Um, and every time I bought a record across, I was having to sit down and get my head together and, <laughs> and stand up and put another record on. And it's, there was a lot of huffing and puffing going on at the time. It was just like, oh, God, this is terrible. And then I put on No, No, No. You know, no, 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 you don't love me. And I, I, that was, it broke me. It absolutely broke me. I was just like, I said to my twin, you've got to do You've got to go on and DJ because I can't do this anymore. I need to go. And the thing is, if I ever got high 
on anything, even the tiniest bit of a pill, I had to go into an enclosed space. I'm not a, I, I get really like crowd agrophobic. So I need to go into a tiny little space and then I'm fine. You know, safe space, lock, lock the door to the toilets, you're fine. So I said to Paula, you DJ, you DJ with Johnny. Every, everyone will think you're me. They, we'll carry it off. Um, you DJ, I'm going to the toilets to get my head together because I am off my tits. <laughs> I, so I left her with Johnny stupidly because they were all absolutely wasted anyway. And what I could hear from the toilets is... Her playing no, no, no over and over again. I was just like, no, change the record. You know, put another one on. You're supposed to put another one on. You don't just play the same record all night. So I was just like in the toilet, like <sighs> hyperventilating, thinking, oh, my God, I need to save this room. And I couldn't get out. I just, I was just like, and then the next thing was, like my head was on the toilet roll dispenser and I was talking to myself like, I really like it in this space. This is really nice. And the next thing, my twin's knocking on the door. Are you coming back? And I think I've played this record enough. I'm like, well, put another one on. I don't know what to play. So no, me and my twin are never going to DJ again because she, she, she loves her music. But she could not. She doesn't have it in her head how to structure a set and play anything for longer than, you know, she could maybe put two or three together. But she will she finds it quite stressful. Well, obviously, you find it quite stressful to stand up in front of a load of people for longer than 15 minutes and put a set together. And I don't know where I learn how to do that. It was just instinctive for me to just keep playing and just keep selecting. And I can do that for hours, hours. I was going to ask, what's the longest set you've played? Um, I remember doing nine hours straight at Stereo in Montreal and I'd got straight off the plane. Um, it was one of the black and blue festival parties and Playing at Stereo is like, it's one of those hallowed ground clubs for, at the time anyway, I don't know whether it is so much now, but certainly then it was one of those clubs that, you know, David Morales had his residency there and Angel Marais played there. And so it was like, to get offered it, it was just mega. And unfortunately, my flight didn't get in till... I think my flight got in at about 9.30 at night and the party started at 10. And I remember, like, I dropped my stuff in at the hotel and I just took my vinyl and they the car was waiting downstairs. I didn't even really have time to change. And I was so jet-lagged, I don't really remember the set. I, I get really, really bad jet-lag. And... I remember playing and getting about halfway through my set and thinking, where am I? <laughs> I didn't even know where I was. And then then about six hours in, I was like, have I played this? Have I, are these? And everyone was still dancing. The, the club was going absolutely mental. 
But when you play long sets, the, the one question you have to avoid asking yourself because it will blow a hole in your set is, have I already played this? You can check on USB, you can check on the history, but and you can check even when you're playing vinyl because, you know, you've stuck your vinyl and you'll put it so that whatever you've played, you've moved to one side. But just the by dint of asking yourself that question, have I already played this, puts doubt in your head and doubt is the worst thing you can have when you're playing a long set because it will it just messes everything up you have to be so sure of your journey no I like to start slow build it up um get to a peak and then come down again I like to do peaks and troughs that kind of journey I don't play linear I think that's quite boring I think you need to um, have moments where people are just literally scraping the ceiling and then they're down and they they take a breather and then they're dancing and that kind of journey but yeah nine hours for me is the longest set and it it was amazing it was a, a brilliant party but I cannot remember a single record I played and how do these long sets and your club sets in general differ from when you're programming a set for the radio? Radio is really different because um, with a radio set, it's generally shorter. I mean, well, it's definitely shorter because I always have a guest mix, which is an hour. And then I play for an hour live. So in an hour, I'm just showcasing new music. So I'll pick 12 to 18 really firing tracks and just belt them out and also with the radio set I like to play tech so it means that the music for the guest DJs can really shine in their own way I don't like to play too similar to the guest DJs that I've got because then you just get two hours of really boring all the same tempo music so I like to switch it up and I like to crank it for an hour which is much much easier uh, you know it's much much easier playing a short set than it is when you're playing a long set because you really have to think about the journey that you want to take people on when you're playing longer I don't really like playing 50 minute sets I think that's a waste of time because literally you're just playing all the hits you know, even if you whether you're playing disco or tech or techno, you're just playing 10 straight bangers, which is, you know, if you're at a festival and you just hear 12 DJs playing 10 straight bangers, it's just relentless and it's boring and it's thoughtless. I prefer it when DJs can play two to three hours because then they really do get the chance to express a little bit of themselves and how we think about the musical world in that time scale. So I think the best sort of set you DJs can play is two to three hours. And that's how, I think that's the difference of the set. On radio, an hour, it's just straight. This is what I think is going to be. Um, these are the producers that I think are going to shine in the next, in the coming months. And in my club set, two hours, three hours, it's, 
I like to be on a little journey, remember this, a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of now, a little bit of now, a little bit of then, a little bit of future. And that's how I play, whether it's disco, house or tech. I like to mix it up between past, present and future. And for radio, what do you like about it as a medium for communicating kind of what you're about to your audience? I like it because it gets into everyone's home. It's like it's got the key to everywhere. Anyone who clicks on the link, whether they're in India or Russia or Paris or London or Manchester or Rochdale or, you know, everyone can be listening all at the same time you know specifically particularly if it's online fm is a bit different it's national and you know when you're on an fm thing then it's more you're talking to your country specifically on an fm wavelength but when you're online you're reaching everyone and if you have a message or if you want to push an artist or, or or if you want to educate people i think it's a really good medium to do that I think with everything that's come up with streaming, Spotify, YouTube, Deezer, that kind of thing, I know A&Rs and record labels are saying that radio maybe isn't that important anymore because anyone who who has a subscription to a streaming service, everyone is their own radio station. But I don't think that's true because I think you still need to point people in the direction you know, of good music you know a lot of people can discover it for themselves but you know Spotify plays and their 50 choices aren't always the most interesting 50 choices probably 30 of those are paying to be in that chart and what radio does is it liberates somebody to say I can play something that isn't in that 50 that someone in Russia or, you know, or Brazil might like and hear and be inspired by and be inspired in such a way that they want to make a track like that. And then they might become the next star that makes the next record. And that's how music does tend to touch people. I think it's on a relay or, a, or, or it's kinetic. And I think radio enables people to pass music on in that way are there any really special radio sets that you've had well my essential mix first of all um and I still stand by that set and I think a lot of people didn't really understand it and to explain I, I suppose I didn't really get the chance to explain what my thinking was behind the essential mix or my essential mix and what I wanted to do was first of all tell a story of who I am and where I'd come from and the music that had inspired me well it was on vinyl it was 1998 so there was no other way of playing it but I didn't go into an all plush, all singing, all dancing studio to make my essential mix. I made it at home and I did it in one take because I wanted to make the kind of set that people would hear if they heard me in a club. I, I 
didn't want to fake it. I just wanted to play the way I play. You know, I was criticised for a long time after that because people were like, oh, it sounds a bit rough and you should, you should have done it this way. But I'm like, I don't play like that. And it was a bit balls on the line-ish for me because... I've always, and, and still, I like to be authentic about what I do. And I just wanted to play the way I play and play the music I play and present the artists that I think were superb at the time. And also what that mix had in it was I was working as a publicist for Mercury Records at the time, so... I was doing the press for, I did all the press for Represent, Ronnie Sides and Represent. I did all the press for New Eureka and Soul, Terry Callier, everything on Talking Loud for four years, I did all the press for. So I made a point of opening the show or the mix with three remixes of New Eureka and Soul, Terry Callier and Represent because that's where I was at that at that point in time. And I think that was a bit misunderstood. Also, they were dub plates, so they hadn't even come out yet. Nobody even knew what it was. Nobody even knew what that music was then. We were just about to start promoting it. So, yeah, that's me just explaining my essential mix. And I still, you know, I go back and listen to it. And there are, you know, there are mistakes in it. But... I don't care because it, it even the mistakes I I can see where I was when I when I made it and it was a very personal mix and I still like it so I don't care. It's nice to document kind of where you were at at that point in your it life. It really does. It really does. It tells its own story and you know it also says what tracks I was playing when I was playing at the Zap on a Saturday night because a lot of those tracks, are, you know, some of those tracks were on there. Roger Sanchez, um, Ultra Nate, um, all those people that were coming through in in vocal house music. And there were vocals on there. There was Rome Anthony on there. There was, you know, there's classics and there was current and there was disco and there was house and there was... It's everything to do with why I love music. I was wondering if your the compilations that you've curated yeah. are they in a similar way, like a snapshot of what? Yeah, they are. They are some of them more than others because the way compilations work is, and it's quite funny. You tell the record label, right? I want forty of these tracks, or, or you'll send them a list of forty or sixty tracks. And then they will come back and say, right, you can have 15 of them and you can, you have to use 15 of ours, you know. And then it was like, oh, right, okay, well, I hadn't really planned on putting that or that or that on there. But you have to because it's coming through that record label. So it has to promote their business as well as everybody else's so I understand that so you have to kind of compromise and work with them I mean I suppose if you're Annie Mac or Pete Tong and you're putting out a compilation of what's coming up you know maybe for Ibiza you'll have your pick of things and also that that is 
how it works is if they have an exclusive on something, then there there are tracks that you can't have, whether you like it or not for your, your compilation, you can't put that on. So your choice kind of gets whittled down and then you work with the absolute, these are my tracks, these are the record label tracks, and I'll put them in put them all together and make something really beautiful with it and um i did three compilations for fashion tv in france and one for mix club and i did one for tool room for radio fg as well when i was in france so i did five compilations when i was in france i did one for nervous records in 2000 um, and i did one for privilege in 2013 and I did their Deep House it was a triple CD set so Semvox did one Martin Garrix did the EDM side of it and I did the Deep House side with like Jute Dumont and Justin Martin and people like that so that was who I wanted to present for their CD yeah compilations are a bit of a weird a weird thing to do I love doing them but your curation has compromise running through it like a stick of rock. <laughs> but you don't have to do that in your DJ sets. No, well, um, people would like you to, you know. The one thing that I am really fed up of people doing is showing me their phone with a request on it or a line of requests or their Spotify playlist or, and I even see it on Derek Carter's, I've seen it on Derek Carter's Twitter stream, you know, don't show me your phone. And really, you know, showing a DJ a phone when they've got the head down and they're concentrating, it's like, or even asking for a request, it's like, it's like driving down the motorway doing 120 in a Tesla and then someone blindsiding you with a juggernaut. That interruption of concentration is extreme. And if people want to really know why DJs growl at them when that happens, that's why. Because you're interrupting like... It's almost like you're thinking in binary ones and zeros. Like it's a mega maths thing going on in your head. Like you're thinking three and four records ahead. You're not just thinking about the one that's playing then. You're thinking three and four records ahead. And if that, then this. And if not that, because it might not work, then you've got to have three different options. So you've got so much music running around your head. And then some... Bozo comes in asking, you know, I've had um, people ask me if I will play a track off their Facebook. And I'm like, what now? <laughs> While I'm in the middle and the room is absolutely jumping, you want me to do this? So no, no, no. Is that more of a thing that's happened like recently yeah. with the development of technology and oh stuff? Oh God, I really wish that clubs and bars and everywhere would get people to check their phones in. I really wish I re I mean, I know, I know that it's really nice to have it documented and to take photos and everything. I'm not against that at all. But this showing someone because everyone has access to the same music now. So whereas before DJs had the exclusive on music, we've not 
quite got that anymore. You know, as soon as a DJ, whether it's Richie Horton or Luciano or 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 I don't know, Marco Carolla or Honey Dijon or as soon as they play a record, Annie Mac, Pete Tong, as soon as it goes online, everyone's got it. Everyone's got access to it, whether they want to rip it from YouTube or whether. So everyone's got that track and everyone's got their favorite track that they can ask a DJ for. But showing a DJ that while they're playing and trying to construct their own world for everybody else to listen to, one is really rude. Why do you think you can do that? That's entitlement. It's like, I have this track on my Spotify and I want you to play it. <laughs> no, no, that just gets that. I've just got that gif of the dog with the really wriggly mouth, you know, like fed up dog face. It's like, you're not making me happy there at all. Do you think um, ravers today who have always kind of had phones and who have never had the uh, just because I've never had the experience of going to a club without my phone mm. and I'm thinking am I like missing out yeah because how I think this is what's made music and what's made the environment and the atmosphere and the ambience of clubs change is because when I started DJing and when I started clubbing going back further than that either either you were there or you weren't so that's how DJs got big because people talked about the party and then the next time they came back, more people went and the next time they came back, more people went. Whereas now a DJ plays, someone records it on the phone, puts it on YouTube, everybody can hear it. And it's not that special anymore. And also those same DJs are traveling flat out all the time all the time all the time so you don't get that exclusivity of a club night or a party or a dj set that you used to have you know it's all available online whether it's from somebody who's been at the party that's recorded it on their phone or they've live streamed it it just takes away all of this and I know it's brilliant and it's technology and this is how it's how it's developed and evolved. I understand that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But it has had a knock-on effect of changing the way that people get something out of, that they get feel the benefit of actually being in a community communal space and listening to music with a lot of other people and that's my 10 pence worth how do you feel about today's music climate specifically for like electronic music and dance music is there stuff that you're nervous about for this community or stuff that you're excited no, for because i think there'll always be new things there'll always be people pushing boundaries you know there will always be someone that wants to do something different or do it in a different way or or go back to analog like neil's from or, or you know mix one thing with another you know but there will always be someone who's doing something new, you know, even in pop music, Billie Eilish, you know, 10 years ago, it it was, oh, what's the name, the one that sang Down on the West Coast? Oh. Uh, Lana Del Rey. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> 
So it was Lana Del Rey 10 years ago, 10... Is it 10 years ago? It's even less than that, maybe eight, eight years ago. And now it's Billie Eilish. And you, you look at the way she's doing it and she's like pop star with an edge. You know, she's not being nice about it. You know, she is totally in it with the cartoon angle, the justice, you know, suicide squad look and all of that. But writing great music. So, you know, even pop electronic, there will always be, you know, there'll always be something new and interesting that comes through. And there'll be all the commercial stuff as well, because that's got to keep, you know, it's got to keep cash cash tills ringing. But there will always be, I think there will always be people doing new and interesting things. So you trust the innovation? I do, totally. You know, it was James Blake and then it's Niels Fram, you know, and after Niels Fram, there'll be somebody else. But, you know, for me, I can see that as a progression, you know, and it's it's amazing. You know, Donald Glover, you know, you look at the way his music's gone or you look at the way that it would have been... Um, the way hip hop has moved on and the way more women are coming through in there. And, and, you know, certainly, yes, there are more women, you know, even though there are not enough, it's not equal, but there are more women coming through and that's great. And certainly in terms of electronic music and DJing, there are more women. Are you happy with the pace um, that more women are coming through? I think it's great now that more women are coming through and being able to take control of their careers. When I started, it wasn't a career, it wasn't a brand and it wasn't a job. It was a bit of a laugh, bit of a hobby. And if you made some money from it, great. But it wasn't seen as steady or it wasn't seen as a career path. Is that for everyone that or specifically for women at that time? I think for everyone, really, really. And then I think probably around 98, 2000s, then it became superstar DJs and they were all men. Fatboy Slim, Carl Cox, Eric Murillo. Um, it became very much a career for men, but not really for women. And it's only much, much later on when you've seen like Kim Ann and Nicole Mudeber and and even now Honey Dijon, where it has become a, a black Madonna. It has become very much a good career path for women and their brands are strong. Um, so that in itself is a very positive change. And I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting how it's, it has taken a really long, long time. time. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm personally satisfied with the pace um, right now because I just feel like my heroes, I, people like Annie Nightingale, have been fighting this fight for so very Absolutely. long. Absolutely. And the thing is, they're getting overlooked because, um, unfortunately, and I know it does touch my life in a, in a way, is that if you've been doing it for long, <laughs> for too long, you're kind of being put out to pasture a bit. Or not put out to pasture, but you're not looked at in the same way. It is very much a young people's game, and certainly in terms of bookings and and even in radio, you have to be quite young for it. And if you're not young for it, you have to really fight for it. So the fight is, the battle is a bit bloody, but 
I think they should make it a bit more even old to young. And when there was the kind of superstar DJs coming out and they were all men, how did you like visualize a career for yourself when you had literally no blueprint? Well, there wasn't, I don't know, you know, I don't, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't, it's funny, you know, I hadn't actually thought about why I stalled, but you've just explained it. There wasn't any blueprint. They, I didn't have any mentor. There isn't anyone. And really, until Annie Matt came along, there wasn't anyone to match. You know, in radio terms, until Annie Matt came along, there wasn't anyone to match Pete Tong. And in superstar DJ terms, there still is not anyone on the level of Carl Cox. There still is not anyone on the level of David Guetta. There still isn't anyone on the level of Solomon. There isn't, you know, there just isn't. And that's the block. There is... There isn't a blueprint. There isn't a mentor. There isn't anyone who's got there. And the closest we'll get now is Black Madonna and is Honey Dijon. You know, she's coming through now, but they can't command an 80,000. Um, you know, they, they're they not going to fill an 80,000 stadium three nights on the trot like Swedish House Mafia. You know, they're not going to get that kind of gig. They're not going to get, you know maybe Black Madonna but yeah there isn't that equivalent and I still hold there isn't a female equivalent to any of those DJs and I bet they're not earning the same money either. Is there anything you think we can do to kind of hurry Give this them along? a job <laughs> give them a job it's not rocket science you know they just make the lineups more even and I know they People will say, oh, well, you know, they can't command the same crowds. It's like, well, they never will until you give them the chance. There's a film called The Natural with Robert Redford in and, and he makes this big baseball square and everyone's saying that he's crazy. And he says, if you build it, they will come. People will warm to an idea it takes time for sure it takes time but they will warm to an idea if you put it on the plate it's like if you only give people beans all the time and tell them that there's only beans to eat they'll only eat beans but if you put beans in an egg on the plate they'll be like oh my god what's that the first time you do it and the second time you serve it they'll eat it so it's not rocket science it really isn't rocket science you just have to offer it Give the women the job, make it an even split, make sure that you've got the same amount of new DJs, mid-range DJs, older DJs, you know, mix it up a bit. You know, they've really got to mix it up a bit and not have it as the same. Uh, see, I'm ranting now and I'm getting a bit <laughs> frothing at the mouth. But it does. It just really irritates me because it's not rocket science. You just offer it. And I don't know what the block is, whether it's on percentages or agents or there's something going on somewhere. But there's glass ceiling, money, earnings. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but they just need to offer it. We'll get to the bottom of it. In the meantime, what would your advice be for 
all the budding DJs and radio hosts. Oh, you've got to you've just got to do it, really do it. And I, I wish, I really wish, because I'd had someone to handhold me a little bit through my career. I've never had any help. I've pretty much done much of what I've done. I've done off my own back, and that's also why it's been a bit of a slog at times and it's taken a lot longer. So I would first say do it yourself. You have to, if you love it, get out there, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid of failure. That comes with it. I have failed more times than I care to mention. I've made some massive mistakes, but I've had some massive successes as well. And you've got to go through the fire. You really have. Make contact with the record labels, other DJs, find your tribe, um, find the people who are like you find the people who who are not like you because collaborations can come from anywhere and once you get it going and you get it rolling you've got to publicize yourself and really get to know the technology not just in terms of how you're playing it or how you're producing it but your social media is really key and I hate it I, I really hate it for me I because I suffer from anxiety so if I didn't um if I never had to use Facebook again I would be a very happy woman but I have to use it for work I have to put myself out there and it's a it's a bit of a you know what do you call it an unnecessary evil but also don't take it too seriously. Don't take it to heart. Um, you can switch your phone off. You can switch your computer off and you can move away from it. So as much as you can have friends and find your tribe in that circle, also be sure about having a, a support network outside as well. And... Um, just enjoy it have fun with it when I started it was fun it was a laugh and now it's a business it's it's not what I wish is that the fun came back into it and it was less about entrepreneurs and business it was more about us all having a really great time in one room at the same time and coming away from it and going oh do you know what I've got 10 new numbers in my phone and I really like these people and oh do you remember when they played that track oh what was that I don't know it's the one that went rather than oh it's on my Shazam and it was you know forget about that just have fun with it just have fun creating something that is you that that represents part of you and that's what I'd say there we go. Number one tip from DJ Paulette. And remember where your record box is. <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> don't forget your records and don't forget your headphones. That's key. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's coming up for you next? Are there still things in music that you want to try? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm still, I'm st still trying, 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 trying to get this track down. But my, I'm not a producer per se, but I'm more a writer. I like lyrics and I like songs and I write melodies and that kind of thing so I'm working at the moment with a producer called Mbaya in Manchester and um, 
we've got three tracks together which are nearly finished if we can get some time to finish it because he's really busy <laughs> um and i'd like to get those finished and into the ears and inboxes of the people that matter and see if i can get another ep signed i mean it's me singing as well so it's a bit life on the line with that one <laughs> if people go oh my god she's got a terrible voice and no she sounds awful i'll be i'll be crushed and hiding under the desk but you just kind of got to feel the fear and do it anyway i know i always used to i used to sing before i um became a dj and i damaged my voice mid 90s so going back into singing is not just therapy but exercising a muscle that I haven't ex exercised for a long time so that'll be interesting if I kind of get that working I'll be very happy because I'll feel a bit more complete about the way I'm 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 doing it uh, so yes writing songs in the studio trying to create something nice again so there's that and then I'm DJing so I've got a few festivals coming up I've got the Blue Dot Festival so I'm playing at Derek Carter's Cosmic Disco so I'll be um at, I don't know whether I'm playing before or after him I think I might be playing after him um so that's in July Blue Dot and then I've got the We Out Here Festival Giles Peterson's new festival in Abbots Ripton that's 15th and 19th of August and I'll be playing on this Saturday, I think it's 17th, 18th. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And I'm also playing at the River Stage for the National Theatre, which is great. That's at the beginning of August. And in Manchester term, I've kind of gone backwards to come forwards, but I've got quite a few dates for the Manchester International Festival which starts in July so I'm opening the festival square on the 5th of July for them so that'll be amazing and there's some secret party happening at Selfridges with me and Mary Ann Hobbs so they're turning the car park into a rave but I'm not supposed to say that but I just did. Um, so that's going to be amazing too. And I'm very excited. I've got some really nice things happening. And then I teach as well. I'm a public speaking coach and uh, creative workshop facilitator for NCS The Challenge. And that starts at the beginning of July as well. So um, all summer I'll be teaching people how to be confident in front of groups of 180, 130, 140 people. So that kind of thing of paying it forward and is very dear to me. So, yeah, I'm teaching as well. That's it, I think. And walking my sister's dog and gardening and talking to slugs. <laughs> uh, so exciting things coming up. Um, Paulette, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. I could have talked all day, but uh, you'll grow a beard. <laughs> I talk, you know, I'll just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. So it's going dark. <laughs> yeah.